This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Thomas Eddy as he considers God's involvements in the lives of the Apostle James, Peter, and the life of King Herod. Thomas Eddy is the Ministry to State Associate Director. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Thomas Eddy explores the lives of two apostles and a king. The book of Acts, uh, first 12 chapters, covers about uh, 14, 15 years of the early church. And before we begin, um, I'd like to just kind of do a real quick review before we dive into Acts chapter 12. So in the very beginning... um, Jesus is ascended, and right before that, the apostles ask him, well, is this the time when you go to restore Israel and its prominence among the nations? And Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know. The time of the hours that that God the Father has fixed by his own authority. But I've called you to go out and tell about the good news about the resurrection, and about the hope that I'm providing, first to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus goes. Well, they first start off in Judea. And as we know, Peter does this great sermon. And Luke tells us that about 3,000 souls were added just that one day. And then Peter goes and preaches on Solomon's portico. And he tells them that you acted out of your ignorance. And so did your rulers when you crucified Jesus. He also healed a beggar that had been begging there all his life. He calls them to repent. And he starts with Moses and the prophets, and he tells them that they were speaking about Jesus and about Jesus resurrected. Well, this leads to their first arrest. And they were brought before the Sanhedrin, and the beggar who they knew was lame was there. 
And Luke records that they couldn't deny that this beggar that they all knew was healed by Peter. So they just simply tell Peter and the apostles, stop telling people about Jesus. And we'll let you go. Just stop it, please. But Peter says to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you got to judge on your own. And they're released. Then comes their second arrest. This time, Luke says that all the apostles were arrested, all 12 of them. And they were put in public prison. And that night, God sent an angel to open up the doors of the prison and let them out. Well, of course, the Sanhedrin, they're not very happy about this. And so they gather them up again. And Luke records that they were beaten this time, told not to speak about Jesus anymore. But the apostles walked away rejoicing over the privilege of having suffered in the name of Jesus. And they continued to preach about Jesus anyway. Well, Stephen comes along, one of the first deacons, and we all know about his story, how he enraged uh, those around him. Luke records that um, there was a synagogue of, quote-unquote, free men. And they argued with Stephen, and they couldn't win. So they came up with false charges, brought him before the Sanhedrin, and then Stephen preaches this great sermon. But the sermon enrages the Jewish leaders, and they pick up stones, and they kill him. And thereafter, Luke records that a general persecution against those who believe Jesus is the Messiah, resurrected from the dead, was brought upon the church, particularly those in Jerusalem. And then God calls Philip, one of the other deacons, to go to Samaria and preach. So Jesus tells them, start in Judea, go to Samaria. Well, here we are in Samaria, and lots of the Samarians believed and were baptized. And then Paul's called, the persecutor of the church himself. And he is told that he would be an instrument of God's and Jesus's to carry out Jesus' name to the Gentiles. So we go to the ends of the world. And then Peter is caught up in this as well. He's sent to a centurion, a Roman soldier by the name of Cornelius, and he was called to be baptized. Uh, he, he was called to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and the apostles laid hands on him, and here now a full-fledged Gentile is part of the church. Well, Luke records that the persecution got so bad that the church scattered, particularly church in Jerusalem. And they ended up all over the place, including Antioch. And it's in Antioch where men and women were first called Christians. Now we're at Acts chapter 12. In the very beginning of Acts chapter 12, Luke records that King Herod, and he's been king about seven years at this point, 
King Herod lays violent hands on those in the church. And he killed the apostle James, the brother of John, with the sword. Then he arrested Peter. Luke adds a little detail that this is during the, uh, the festival of unleavened bread, Passover. Puts Peter in jail. Waits until after Passover and after the festival to execute Peter as well. And you probably know the story quite well. Peter's in jail. We don't know how long. Let's assume he gets arrested at the very beginning of the feast. He's been there for seven days. Seven days. Church is praying. He's praying. Nothing's happening. Execution day comes. An angel shows up. And Peter's so sound asleep that Luke records that the angel had to strike him to wake him up. His chains fall off. The guards are sound asleep. Angel takes Peter out of jail, leads him away, and then disappears. And Luke records that Peter said that it was at that time when the angel disappeared that he realized he wasn't having a vision. This was real. He was really out of jail. So he goes over to the mother of John Mark's house where the church is gathered and praying. He knocks on the door. And this woman by the name of Rhoda, could you imagine just, you know, the only time you're ever mentioned in the Bible or, you know, uh, saved for all of history is when, you know, you open up the door and you slam it in the face of an apostle. <laughs> so Rhoda opens up the door. She gets all excited, slams the door, runs up and tells the church. The church says, it can't be Peter. He's in jail. It must be his angel or it must be something else. Or you're just making it up. But he's pounding on the door. And they come down, open the door. It's, it's Peter. He is there. And Peter tells him what happened and goes away. King Herod, on the other hand, he doesn't know any of this is happening. So when he finds out that Peter is not in the jail... He questions the guards and probably assumes that one of them was in on it. And none of them would speak about it. So he just executes all of them. They're all dead. And he goes off to Caesarea where he has a delegation waiting for him of a bunch of angry people from another country. And he puts on his finest robes. Luke doesn't tell us this, but Josephus does. He, he recounts the story as well. Josephus says that the robes they put on was made of silver. And he goes out in the morning sun, gives a speech, and the people, because of the radiant robes and reflection of the sunlight, and his speech just says, the voice of a god. Herod doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. But God knows his heart. And he sends an angel, according to Luke. And within five days, according to Josephus, the king is dead. Now, we chose this chapter because in it we have these elements. We have James being represented as a member of the church who's executed. We have Peter, another representative of the church, who was rescued. And we have King Herod representing the state, executing an apostle, executing guards who let another apostle go, and coming under judgment himself. 
And there's an awful lot we can explore, and we'll go explore a little bit um, uh, in the little bit of time that we have. And what we've decided to do is gather together a panel up here of members of, um, of Ministry of State, and I'm going to ask them some questions. We, we've got these questions in the back as well. Um, and uh, so if you want to take them with you as we go, um, you can do that. And I actually had them printed off here. We, nope. I'll use it this way. So um, uh, I'm going to ask our panel these questions. So we'll go take about, you know, 20 minutes or so uh, and go through these. And then if we have time, uh, we're, we'll get a question or two from you all and, um, um, and, we'll, see, and then we'll see where we go from there. Okay, question number one. In Acts 12, we see how the combination of politics and government power brings harm to the visible church of Christ. And although government actions brought harm to the church, still the church flourished as the word of God increased and multiplied. How do we see politics and government power bring harm to the church in our day? Do we uh, find the church expanding and flourishing as the word of God increases and, mul and multiplies? And if not, how is it different in our day? Uh, I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, Thomas, thank you for uh, your uh, introduction and, and exposition of Acts, of Acts up until Acts 12. That was very helpful. Um, I think if we're going to ask the question about uh, the sort of church and state relations in our own time, uh, as we wonder about uh, the persecution of the church today, uh, I think I can say this and it not be super controversial, but I think we can say that uh, in recent history we have seen the state take a more antagonistic approach towards the church, and I think that's largely because of issues related to sexuality and gender. Um, we, we see uh, examples, uh, especially at the Supreme Court level and other uh, legal battles, things that you might be familiar with, cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, any of the cases involving the Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, and there's currently a case right now uh, before the Supreme Court about a high school football coach who is, um, was uh, told to stop leading prayers uh, after games. And so I think taken together, we see this trend of, uh, of the state really doing its, its best uh, legally to fight the church uh, in ways that might silence Christians about speaking up about their beliefs, particularly on these issues of sexuality um, and gender. But these are all cases of individuals. I think the, the question, if we're really going to look at it in, in context of Acts 12, the question is, what about the institutional church? What about the church as an institution? Um, and uh, sadly, you actually don't have to look outside our own denomination uh, for an example. Now, this is not necessarily as uh, explosive of a case as something like Masterpiece Cake Shop or even the, the case about the football coach, but um, in our own denomination, there was a, a church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, that had a, a legal dispute with uh, the governing authorities there about the issue of um, a tax exempt status uh, on one of its properties. And so in that case, to sum it up very, very quickly, um, the governing authorities, the, the secular state authorities, uh, decided to interpret the BCO uh, according to their own interpretation for the church. Uh, that's a very broad uh, sweep at it, but that's, that's effectively what happened. Um, and of course, this isn't the same kind of persecution uh, like we're, we're seeing in Acts 12, but it is persecution nonetheless. And so we see um, uh, that in, in our days, 
the, the way that the, the, the state has decided to really fight the church on these things is, is really in legal uh, disputes. But I don't think that that is, uh, well, well, I think that that is uh, something to be concerned about, uh, and we should absolutely be uh, concerned about it. Um, I think there's also things to be hopeful for. Uh, things, uh, especially when I think about um, what's happening with Christianity in other parts of the globe, uh, particularly the global south and, and how Christianity is exploding there. Um, already, uh, those countries are sending missionaries out, and, and pretty soon, if they're not already here, we'll be sending missionaries into our own backyards. Um, and one of the things that I think we can, we can be happy about with that uh, is that our brothers and sisters, especially from the, these parts of the world, are far more, for a lack of a better term, conservative on these issues of sexuality and gender. Um, and so what that, that trajectory, I think, tells me um, is that the Lord hasn't given up on his church here and his people here and is still calling um, uh, people to himself. Uh, and so our brothers and sisters who are, who are coming here as missionaries um, and are, are uh, concerned about this issue as well um, very might well be the vehicle for uh, revival uh, in our own country. Anybody else like to tackle that? And, and the person about to speak, his name is John Hanna. He's one of our state capital ministers in New Jersey. Go ahead, John. Thanks. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Thanks Robert, for that um, sort of overview. I just want to cite a particular, you know, the, obviously we're looking at the church under duress. And so I think it's helpful to look at maybe if there are examples of, of the church flourishing under duress. One that I can t tell you about that I'm familiar with is actually the church in Egypt uh, recent, in, in recent history. Obviously, it's, it's been a church under duress for, for 1,400 years, practically. But um, some of you might be familiar with what took place about a decade ago, where the president of Egypt was sort of forced out. The revolution was actually televised. And, um, and the Muslim Brotherhood were the, was sort of the, the entity and the people who were prepared to assume power. And they did and impose their will on the nation. And so the largest evangelical church in the Middle East is in the heart of Cairo. And um, I heard the pastor of that church talk a number of years ago, and he said it was the worst time politically and economically that they've, that they've ever experienced, that they've seen. And it was actually also the worst wave of persecution for Christians in 700 years. And he said, and it was the best time we've ever experienced spiritually. That as a result of this, the church sort of became um, sort of stronger from within, more devoted from within, and more bold from without. And he said for the first time, really, because um, in Egypt, you are, your religion is who you are. So a Muslim isn't simply have a set of beliefs. A Muslim is a Muslim. <laughs> You can't, not, you can't be un-Muslim. That's why it's so radical to convert. But he said for the first time, Muslims were questioning their own religion and seeking truth. And, and he said there was, and, what the impetus, and so there was a movement of prayer that resulted in love for sinners, the way he put it, and evangelism. And he said for the first time, we began, and so there was a turning of, of sort of both, both nominal Christians and Muslims to Christ. And he said for the first time, we, we baptized Muslims publicly in our services. We had never done that before. If you baptized a Muslim, you did it secretly somewhere where nobody could know and nobody could see. And he said it wasn't because it was less dangerous. It was actually more dangerous. There was a hit on this man's life. And there was somebody tried to kill him, literally. Um, 
And so, but so I think that on some level, I think the encouragement is sort of the, ultimately it's the drawing near to the Lord, but you also see the Lord using um, what was really, and three weeks before the, the, the revolution, there was an explosion outside a church in Alexandria killing 20-something people. And so that all, these, all these events were horrific on some level, yet at the same time, they were spiritually vital and fruitful. So that's just an example from recent history. Okay, let's uh, tackle another question then. Um, in the early church, there were forces at work to divide the church. There were those who were seeking the nation state of Israel, the zealots. There were those who were loyal to Rome, like uh, centurion Cornelius. Uh, there were those who were zealous for the law of Moses and for the separation from the Gentiles. And there were those that were zealous to include the Gentiles pretty much as they were. Today, there are forces at work that divide us as well. What brought unity to the early church and helped them overcome uh, the things that divided them? Yeah, thanks, Thomas. Uh, and my this name is Will. That's who I am. Stockdale, he's another. Uh, my name is Will Stockdale. I'm a ministry associate in D.C., getting to serve with Dave and Robert and getting to see. This is only the second time I've gotten to spend time with you, so this is, this is great. Yeah, John. Um, you know, when I, when I think about this question of unity, one of the things that I think about was when I moved to Washington, D.C., one of the things that I was perhaps least expectant of were the number of factions and divisions in that city. So not only do you have a division between the left and the right, of course, that's obviously there, Republican and Democrat, of course. You have caucuses as well. You have committees as well. You have subcommittees. And then off the Hill, you have think tanks. You have AEI, American Enterprise Institute, is different from Brookings. And you have AEI is different from Heritage. Heritage is different from American Compass. So you have this plurality of differences. Uh, and then within those differences, you have different philosophies that govern different departments. So DC is a city of, um, of divisions. Uh, before going any further, I want to say that I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. Founding father, father of our Constitution, James Madison, who studied under the great Presbyterian John Witherspoon, had a great understanding of, of, of uh, uh, human depravity and the fallenness of man, said that our civil rights rest upon a multiplicity of interests. And so the base of our civil rights, a guarantee of civil rights among us, rests on a multiplicity of interests. And so this can be uh, a good thing, a helpful thing. But something that we have to ask ourselves when we look at this division is uh, something that Francis Fukuyama calls, uh, says that no nation can exist without a unified story of peoplehood. So for a place to exist, for a country of people to exist, there has to be a agreed upon story of peoplehood, where they came from, where they're going, what do they value, what do they want to achieve. Uh, that question is being asked in our country, of course, right now. It's, it's being asked on both sides. It's being hotly debated. We don't need to get into specifics. Um, but that's not, not being asked just because we're Americans or a, a government, but because we're humans. Uh, this is a basic human question, this question of story, this question of who am I, where did I come from, what do I want, where do I value, and where am I going? And so what I would like to say is that... Uh, when we consider and ask what was it that unified the early church, the apostles, I want to say that it was basically a unified story. Um, it is a story of God's goodness, his mercy, uh, him sending his son, Jesus Christ, who was the embodiment and fulfillment of God's story that began with Adam and Eve and that will end in Revelation 22. Uh, he is the incarnational fulfillment of this covenant. Uh, one thing that I want to say, though, is that I, I think 
you know, we talk about story being a source of unity. I think that we can make a mistake by ending with story in and of itself, by saying that if we just have the right story, we'll be in a fine position. Well, a cursory reading of the entire New Testament would show us that that is certainly not the case, uh, that while the apostles and disciples agreed on where they came from, where they're going, yes, the debates came up in how do we apply this? How do we make this work? How do we get from point A to point B? How do we resolve the conflict in front of us? And so, you know, as, as we look at the story and doctrine, I think that there can be a temptation perhaps to um, appeal to a type of primitivism, and I would like for us just to avoid that. And so instead, what I would just encourage us to see is that at Pentecost, um, what did Peter do? He stood up and gave a story. He told about who Jesus was, what he had come to do, how he had come to rescue him. Then he made a call for repentance that was based on the doctrine of our sin and need of a Savior. And that this is a story that was held as men as different from Simon uh, and Matthew to Peter and John. And so what I want to end with is this as, as an, an appeal. There's a, um, a 19th century British lord, we'll bring in the Brits here um, for a minute, Lord Moulton, who said that the greatness of a nation, the essence of its true character, is measured by its obedience to the unenforceable. So the character of a nation, it's true, the true essence of its goodness or greatness is measured by its obedience to the unenforceable. And so there's a principle here that I think we can grasp for us at GA. You know, just because we're at GA and we have different people from different places gathered together, it doesn't mean that we have to be kind to each other. Proximity does not necessitate kindness. Um, and then I think even beyond this boundaries, you know, we, we can be encouraged our congregants to tithe, but that doesn't necessarily uh, create generosity in their hearts. And so what I want to end with is saying that there is something we need to pray for, for this sense of an unenforceable quality that uh, will be a measure of our love and faithfulness to what God has called us to do. Very good. Thanks. Anybody else like to comment? or? Yeah, I would just like to quickly say that part of that um, enforcing the unenforceable uh, especially as we think about inspiring unity. I, I think of the words um, in our uh, larger catechism about the Ninth Commandment, about what, what is, part of, what is what are, what part of the duties entailed in the Ninth Commandment. And part of that is defending people's innocency or this idea that w it's an unwillingness to admit the worst about people, that part of our uh, responsibilities and obligations as Christians and as brothers and sisters in Christ is to assume the best of one another uh, with, if we don't have any other um, uh, evidence to suggest the opposite. So I think part of, part of the sort of the grease to what uh, Will is talking about here is this obedience to the ninth commandment as, as, we're, told in the ninth, as uh, we're told in the catechism. Very good. One, one brief thought regarding sort of unity or the, the challenge to unity that we face in particular within the PCA is I think people who share uh, theological convictions, genuinely so, and really sort of affirm the same truths, perceive threats in diametrically opposite ways. So one person will perceive the threat as from the quote-unquote right, from, you know, we're going to be too harsh, too closed, too narrow, too unwelcoming. And the other person will perceive the threat as from, as from the left. We're going to be too soft, too compromising, too silent. And so you have people who really agree on the great truths, and yet their, their view um, of the world is diametrically opposed in such a way that they end up feeling like they can't agree on anything on some level. And so I think one possible step forward is for people who are like that to genuinely sit down and listen to one another 
and, and find that there's, that, that's not gonna bring us all the way there. It's not, we don't wanna be sentimentalists. There's still gonna be a gap. But I think it can be closed if you realize that this brother or this, you know, has really has, shares your concerns on some level and wants to see the same mission accomplished, but they just see things over here as more concerning. And I think there can be um, bridges uh, sort of built and, and, and steps forward that are, that are sort of advanced through that kind of honest listening to one another and conversation. And so that even as we perceive the threats differently, we don't perceive one another as threats in the same way. Hey, John, why don't you keep the mic, and I'll, yeah, sure. I'll throw the next question at you. <laughs> so obviously, Christ could have prevented Herod from killing James. He did it with Peter. He, he did it before when they were all arrested together. Uh, Jesus could have either uh, brought um, about J uh, James' release, or he could have brought about uh, Herod's death earlier than he did. Why didn't Jesus do this? What kingdom purpose was accomplished by James's death? Wouldn't the early church be asking these questions as well? Shouldn't we be asking what kingdom purposes might be served by the forces that oppose the church today? How would an answer to this question bring a greater sense of unity within Christ's church today? So I think this, this is obviously a very deep question. On some level, it gets at our sort of our most basic commitments regarding God's sovereignty and, um, and his faithfulness and our suffering and trust in, in him. And I think when we face challenges that are from our society or in our engagement with, with government or politics, sometimes those commitments can become obscured or seem less real and relevant, or at least we can be tempted in, in that direction. Um, and I think, first of all, to answer the initial question, um, sort of from, from, a, from a micro or particular level, we don't know why James, the Lord allowed James to die. We don't know why the Lord, uh, generally we cannot, it's hard for us to discern why the Lord allows one to live and, and one to die. These are the prerogatives of his sovereignty and wisdom. And, you know, the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, and so there's, there are particular things that happen around us that we simply don't know. And that's not a cause for us to question the goodness of God, the faithfulness, but actually it's a cause of worship. For us to fall down before him and worship his godness. Um, and so there's that. However, in the macro, in the things that have been revealed to us, we do know that our Lord's um, um, suffering to glory, his death to resurrection, his hum humiliation to exaltation is our way and life also in him. It's a dangerous thing to be a Christian in this world. Um, and I think that in some level we, we're coming to grips with that and maybe in a way that we haven't before. But we're told directly in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so to, to the extent our earthly authorities demand our allegiance to them in their opposition to God is the extent to which we can incur their hostility and their wrath. Um, and we can be regarded as defiant and dangerous. That's just a fact. Just as, just as we, saw, we see the church is regarded in that way throughout Acts. And here's a verse, Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come down here also, and they are, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Why? They're saying that there's another king, Jesus. Right? What's wrong with these people? But what we find 
is that that opposition, that hostility, those threats are the setting and even the instrument of God for the growth of the church, both spiritually and numerically. The church doesn't grow. Um, the church grows because of it. Um, and so I think this, it's the same for us today. We live in a time of tumult, a time of conflict, a time of upheaval, um, even where the most basic question of what a human being is is hotly contested every single day. But I think as in the scriptures and as is throughout history, such happenings are the setting for the work of the Holy Spirit and are the indications of the advancement of the kingdom of God and the growth of the church. Um, and the opposition and the vitality and growth are interconnected. And so that's, I think that's part of the reality of what it is that we're dealing with. And it's interesting to note, put this out here for you, that in the Gospels, the demonic realm is the, is, is the one that seemed to recognize what was going on before anyone else. So could that not be part of the frenzy that we are now experiencing? That the spiritual principalities and powers understand there's something taking place, that their demise is, is, nearer, is nearer than ever, or something is happening spiritually of some significance within the church and the advancement of God's kingdom, maybe in, in a way that is um, remarkable or a way that's, that, is, that is historic, because that's what we see throughout history. These times of upheaval are the times of the church's coming to life. And so I, I think that, so I think I put that out there for you. At the same time, that is not a call for us to be passive or to simply be afraid to, to call what is evil by its name. I'll give you an example. Okay? I don't think the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, is so fragile that it is imperiled by our speaking up to oppose uh, the evils that, that are being inflicted upon our children, upon all children, by the transgender movement. Actually, failing to so speak uh, can be a way of our avoiding the persecution and the suffering that are part of who we are and part of what it is that we are called to, and can even be, be can quench the work of the Spirit who works through the conflict, through the church speaking the truth in love to build and advance the kingdom of God. And I don't think our, our confrontation is not from worldly fear, it's not or resentment, but it's out of the fear and love of God, the love of his people, the love of our neighbor, and even the love of those who are opposing, um, who are advancing these, these evils. Um, and so I, I think that that's, um, and so getting back to the issue of disagreement, I'm gonna try to be, I'm gonna be straight here with you. Because I think on some level, I think, we in, like, I think this issue, I, I present to you a way in which people who are like-minded end up disagreeing. Because I think there are some of us who, who see in this movement that is so pervasive in our society, what they see is the call to be a welcoming place for those who have been captured by this movement, those who are trapped, and even a welcoming place for those who are advancing this movement. And we agree, although I think there's a distinction between dealing with the person who's trapped and dealing with the person who's advocating for sure, but we agree, I think we all agree, that being a welcoming place for people to be called to the love of God in Christ is who we want to be. However, there are two further issues that I think maybe the, we don't quite see in the same way. One is, with respect to this movement, we are called to protect and guard the people of God because this movement is coming after our children and coming after our children hard. And two, 
we need to speak to the systemic injustice where this movement has captured the institutions of our society so deeply and ideologically that it is imposing harm on all of our the children in our society in a pervasive manner. And so I think as, and as we do that, then we may and probably will invite the kind of opposition that we see in Acts 12. Right? Maybe not unto death, but certainly in some intense way. At the same time, though, it's an opportunity for unity. Unity in prayer and fasting, unity in repentance and God-seeking. To find as we are being honed and we are actually finding what the apostles say at the, at the end of Acts 5, which Thomas cited to, that we rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. So I just kind of throw that out for you as my answer. Anybody else? This is going to be uh, Dave, uh, yeah. who is our operations director for Ministry of State. Dave Durant. Um, so what strikes me about the unity that the church uh, found in this time of persecution uh, came about from their understanding of, of what is their identity and their understanding of what is most real uh, spiritually. So that understanding came about um, it, it, because their world was overturned and their understanding that they had was transformed. They thought their Jesus was their king who would be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, but instead he is the king who sits on a throne in heaven. And they thought that their kingdom would be here, a kingdom that's of this world. Jesus made it clear to Pilate and made it clear by the very truth that he was enthroned in heaven that his kingdom is not of this world. And so their, their identity was with their king and their kingdom, and they understood that this was not of this world. And so uh, they also understood something about their warfare, that they're at war with spiritual powers, and the warfare is accomplished through the word of God, the power of the spirit, as they give testimony to the name of Jesus. And that brought unity. It was their identity that came from their deep convictions and understanding of where their home was, who their king was, and where their true kingdom uh, citizenship lies and allegiance lies. It's not here in the world. And so uh, they weren't phased when James was put to death. He was bringing testimony to God's name, to the name of Christ. And so is Peter in being saved. And so I think that's what the church needs to remember is who we are and gather ourselves around our true identity, our true king, and our true kingdom and battle the true warfare and not use political power, um, not identify ourselves with a political party or a political um, individual. Our only identity is in Christ. So. Very good. Okay. So in conclusion, this is from Thomas to you. I just want to give you some words of wisdom from the scriptures. First is uh, when uh, Paul and, and Peter both tell us to honor the, go, um, uh, the rulers, uh, the emperor. They're talking about Nero. I think most of you know who he is. Um, and I think the principle they, they get is from Exodus here. You shall not 
uh, revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. You're not, we Christians are not to be uh, speaking ill of those who are in power over us, period. And, and the, both the Old Testament and New Testament tells us that. Jeremiah, God tells them uh, when they go out to Babylon uh, to build houses, plant gardens, um, seek the welfare of those around you. Pray for them. Pray for them. So we shouldn't be praying ill prayers to the politicians we don't like. We should be seeking their welfare and pray for them. And lastly, um, Paul tells us, uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless those do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, which means that when we have political differences between us, uh, we listen. We don't argue. Um, we respect somebody else's difference from us. We live in harmony with each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And most importantly, do not repay evil um, uh, for evil. Um, give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. And if you remember nothing else from this, remember these words. If at all possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. And that should be the message that we give to those who wonder, how do we deal with this political division in the church? Thank you all so very much for coming. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.